Heavenly Father, there's so many things to be thankful for, and we could make a long list, and we do often in our prayers. But I'd like to begin by saying that uh, we are thankful, Father, when you remind us, even for all things, for you're working all things together for our good uh, and uh, our eternal glory. So, Father, I pray that those that are suffering greatly, uh, that know you, would be reminded of this, that you are still loving them with a perfect love and they're in the very center of your will and purpose, but that your purpose is far greater than just the days and the hours where we find ourselves right now. In fact, your purpose is an eternal purpose. And uh, so all the promises given are in that uh, realm for now and, and of course, eternity. And this life is just a preparation for that. So, Father, I just thank you for that. Thank you for good times together with family. Many of us were blessed with recently and for safe travel. Uh, many miles were covered and many uh, challenges were were faced and uh, you've uh, orchestrated our affairs so well. So, Father, we just thank you for that and praise you for that and that you never stop working on our behalf. We do pray for the divisions in families and amongst friends and even amongst the staff in the hospital over these very basic and fundamental issues. But where where do where do we go for true hope and and what uh, in what do we trust? Do we trust in government, in edicts, in uh, supposed science, or do we truly trust in you? And those that do not know you, Father, have nowhere to turn. And there is great uh, turmoil in the hearts of so many, and and even um, anger and we dare say it, it seems like hatred that's dividing people more and more. Father, I I pray for those suffering greatly from illness. Please give us great wisdom in these very hard times that have come upon our nation and the world. And uh, give us great wisdom to know how in this in this new year to live in such a way that would be a help and a blessing and a light uh, for those in darkness and and a blessing to those nearby who, in many cases, need great encouragement. So please encourage us that we might be able to encourage them with the comfort that you've given us. And now as we open your word, Father, I pray that you'd be, open our hearts and may it be a great blessing to us in Christ's name. And amen. Today, we finish up the section on Paul. Remember, uh, we're opening um, up the book of Genesis by focusing on how in Genesis, uh, many great themes of the faith, the foundations of our faith are revealed. Uh, but uh, first of all, we've decided to focus on the subject of the inspiration of Genesis, since that's constantly under attack even these days in the seminaries and by pastors and teachers and 
it's just the most common thing to reject uh, as inspired the portions at least of Genesis that uh, speak of the creation and, and other matters that are beyond the realm of human history or so it seems. So to see Genesis as history inspired, given by God and foundational for our faith has been our focus. And uh, we considered how our Lord himself in many ways indicated that, that Genesis is uh, given by God. It is sacred history it is to be interpreted that way. And uh, now we've seen how Paul has in many ways revealed the same in his letters. And today we'll finish that up um, by looking at the letter to the Hebrews. And that's sort of a, fit, a, a fitting way to finish uh, Paul's references because in the Hebrews, we find very, very strong <laughs> references to Genesis, even the earliest chapters. So I'm happy to be uh, sharing that with you today. And it's been a great blessing to me to prepare today. I've learned so many things, that just things I hadn't seen before. Now, finally, after all these years, are quite clear, and I'm just so thankful to the Lord for that. Last time, we mainly focused on this federal headship doctrine. And I'm not going to give you any review now other than just to state the, the, the basics of what the federal headship doctrine is and how fundamental it is to our faith. We need to move ahead today or we'll be going really way over time. <laughs> um, I strongly recommend that you go back to the notes that I put out there online on libertymessenger.org. It's for your benefit. It might be beneficial listening again to the uh, teaching that I gave, which is put out there as well. When I can keep caught up right now, I'm a little behind. But um, but the notes, I always get those right out there, right off in the same day that uh, we have our meeting here. And uh, you'll find a lot more detail there. You'll also find it to be probably a lot easier to understand uh, the points that are made by reading what's put there. And uh, that's certainly true with this uh, focus that the Apostle Paul has here, especially in Romans 5, you know, on this doctrine, this fundamental teaching, which is uh, generally called the federal headship doctrine. And that is basically that uh, God imputed or, or counted Adam's single act of rebellion against all of his offspring. And not only that, but against Eve, too, against all of the human race. Uh, they came to be sinners because God counted Adam's sin of rebellion, that one single act of sin uh, against all. And uh, that continues today. People are lost ultimately because of Adam's sin imputed to their account. Then there are other consequences that have come upon us as well, right? The sin nature is uh, given to all that are born and uh, born of uh, Adam and Eve. And uh, 
through that, uh, sin is multiplied in this world, right? And <laughs> oh, what's the consequence of that? It's so great. And for those that do not accept the righteousness of Christ, that's what the gospel is all about, is how Christ's single act of paying the penalty for our sins is counted to the account of, it is imputed to all those who believe, okay? All those those who believe the gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ. That's uh, the federal headship doctrine, you know. From Adam upon all came sin and death in every form of that. Uh, from Christ, one act of righteousness comes eternal salvation. Now, if we don't understand this federal headship teaching, then we're really confused. We may be believing any form of doctrine, right? And that's what we see happening uh, all around us with those that name the name of Christ, but really don't have understanding of these basic teachings. So that's uh, really uh, where we focused last time today. We're looking at the, the doctrine given in the letter to the Hebrews, and we'll see how it's all all founded on the Genesis account as well. There are three parts. <laughs> three parts. First of all, God's rest after the creation is the model for the believer's rest. That's interesting, huh? God created all things in six days, and then he rested the seventh, and that's held up as the model for the believer's rest. Hmm, interesting, huh? Then the promise of God through Abraham's seed, also called the seed of the woman in a number of places, right? The promise of God through Abraham's seed is foundational truth. You really must believe that God made a promise to Abraham that he will keep and has kept through uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's absolutely foundational truth. And Paul goes all the way back to Genesis for this. And then uh, the last point is that that faith, that specific faith, which is the substance of our hope, was established in the beginning. So Paul writes about faith and what the essence of that faith is and how that kind of faith, that sort of faith, not just any kind of faith, but that kind of faith uh, was established at the beginning and goes back to Genesis for that. Okay, so first of all, God's rest after the creation is the model for the believer's rest. I'd like to start our readings today in, uh, Linda, if you can read for us in Hebrews chapter 3, Verses 5 through 12. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, 
when your fathers when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath thou shalt not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Amen. Wow, what a statement, huh? What a great statement uh, written here in uh, Hebrews chapter 3. Now, the letter to the Hebrews, as you well know, was written to Gentiles? No, not directly, but to the Hebrews, <laughs> okay? They had a heritage that went all the way back to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, right? That was their heritage. It was their culture. They, they were thinking of that every day, often during every day. And even if they were Christians, even if they'd been saved by grace through faith, Paul's writing, I think, uh, to many who had uh, already uh, believed the gospel of grace, right? But had been led astray by false teachers, which is often the case, right? And, and so uh, he writes to those who know very well the Old Testament scripture. Well, so you'll see in, his, in this letter to the Hebrews, many references back to Old Testament scripture. My connections with those who are Jewish believers, I've learned that they their memory can be just incredibly accurate. I mean, some of them have uh, perfect memory. They can remember long, long, long sections of scripture perfectly. <laughs> uh, not me, but anyway, that's the way they are. So when Paul writes, he's writing to those that know scripture, but they may not understand it. And so he's explaining what the scripture means. Okay, he's interpreting it. Okay, so what we see here in this section of scripture is most really most amazing. Uh, notice what verse 7 says, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. So what what he's doing here. He's actually going back to Psalms 95 and quoting directly out of Psalm 95, written hundreds of years after um, after the uh, time in the wilderness when the children of Israel had come out of Egypt, right, through that great miracle of the Exodus. And they're complaining and wishing they could have the same food they had in Egypt and so forth. And there are many trials and tribulations there in those first weeks when they're in the wilderness and they come to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up uh, on the mount eventually after they say, we will obey the Lord, right? Everything that he has commanded us. And immediately the mountain starts to shake and burn and this is a terrible situation indeed and everybody's in great fear and moses uh, goes up and uh, is given the ten commandments right <laughs> he comes down with them on two tablets of stone 
he sees that the people are living in idolatry in the worst possible way. And idolatry is punishable by death. There is the death penalty in Moses' law. And so Moses breaks the tablets into pieces. <laughs> well, many of the people uh, ultimately are then going to be executed, but not all, even though they've all broken <laughs> the law, <laughs> right? And so the people are, the nation is largely spared at this time. The law, law of God on the tablets has been shattered into pieces. But then Moses goes back up and uh, is given another set of tablets and the, the whole law later on, a second time. Okay. Um, but notice what verse 7 says. It says, the Holy Ghost saith. Okay. So. What Paul is saying, okay, um, in Psalm 95, David wrote something amazing about rest and peace. Uh, he says that the people of God, the children of God, the Israelites, they would not hear my voice and they provoked me, right? And so they, he, he, said they shall not enter into my rest okay that generation would not be allowed to enter into his rest that's what it says in exodus okay and david in psalm 95 is quoting that referring back to that but what it says here is that it's the holy spirit they certified that. So David's words in Psalm 95 are certified to be true in scripture, true scripture, right? As he's referring back to and interpreting what happened earlier. So the Exodus account is uh, scripture. That's an interesting thing to see. You don't often see this where it says the Holy Spirit certifies certain words that refer back to other portions of scripture. Okay, um, but the teaching of Paul here is not about that as much. In other words, not so much about the judgment upon those generations who had not believed, but he's using that as an example for believers in his own day, right? So, and then he's going to, in, in exhortation, say what even applies to us today, okay? So the same principle applies, and that is that God has reserved a rest for those that will trust and believe in him. Okay? The rest is available. That's the whole point of this, of these several chapters in this letter to the Hebrews. The rest is available, but if you place yourself back under a law, you will not have rest. You'll have conflict and 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 failure, and you will not feel like you are worthy of anything except the judgment of God, right? Because you cannot live up to his standards. So that's the problem with law. It condemns, right? So Paul is saying there is a rest available. You can read about it in David, where hundreds of years after the children of Israel were told they would not be allowed to enter into his rest. In Psalm 95, David says there's still a rest available for the people of God who will believe him and take him at his word, right? 
the rest is still available. And Paul then quotes that to indicate the rest is always available. So all of the children of God in whatever period they've lived in, whatever dispensation, can rely on this promise. Rest is available. Not by coming into the land, that's the rest that was promised before, right? To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his their children, right? The land of rest, the land of promise. That isn't available. Spiritual rest rather is available. Okay? And so in chapter 3, verse 18 and 19, we read these words, To whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. But then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. Okay? Now, to establish this teaching, though, he goes back to Genesis. This is uh, in chapter 4 further along. Okay. Chapter 4, verse 3. For we which have believed do enter rest, into rest, as he as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Okay, there he goes now directly back to Genesis chapter 2, and then in verse 4 he refers to those words in Genesis 2. He says, For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, a quotation from Genesis chapter 2, right? And so he says, going back to the example God himself gave, after six days of creation, he rested. He stopped his creative work on the seventh day. From then on, it's maintenance. It's not creation out of nothing. He's no longer creating out of out of nothing, out of that which is invisible, something which is visible, okay? And and that's so that's uh, how, how he goes back ultimately to Genesis chapter 2 to use God himself as the example of believers for all time, right? God rested after his work, and so there were no more works of that kind uh, being accomplished by God as an example that, uh, as he says here now in, in Hebrews 4, um, 9, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. See that? How nicely he brings that out there by going back to Genesis 2. And then verse 11, the great exhortation. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Okay? So, by going back to Psalm 95, which quotes from Exodus, and then going all the way back to Genesis 2, uh, Paul proves again that the Genesis account is absolutely fundamental. 
the whole Christian life is based on, based on rest, right? Ceasing from our own works and allowing God and the Holy Spirit to work through the new nature in us to bring forth fruit. The whole thing is based on this concept of rest. And Paul goes back to Genesis 2 to provide the foundational teaching for that, isn't it? That's a, I think it's a wonderful thing. Okay, let's keep going here, though. The second thing we'd like to look at is that the promise of God through Abraham's seed is foundational truth. The promise of God through Abraham's seed. Okay, so, but before we go there, let's read actually what's written there in Genesis 2 to see what the very words were that Paul was referring back to. Okay, Lydia, would you read for us Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3? Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the, the seventh day and, and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. Thank you, Lydia. So... We must take Genesis literally or we miss the whole <laughs> basis for the teaching that comes later. All right. Hmm. Okay. Now the promise of God through Abraham's seed. So for that, I'd like Elizabeth to read from Hebrews chapter six. So those chapters we were looking at there in three and four lead up directly into this. This is the next subject that occupies the author's mind. In Hebrews 6, verse 9, and then 12 through 20. Elizabeth? But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Uh, well, there we have some of the profound and we could call amazing teaching, really wonderful teaching concerning the promises of God and how trustworthy they are. Okay, so here he singles out one particular one. Where does he find it? In Genesis chapter 22, right? Okay, when Abraham is told, take up your son, your only beloved son, take him up to the top of the mountain that I will show you, and offering and offer him up as a sacrifice, as a burnt offering unto me. That's the most amazing thing in Scripture, maybe in a sense, how, how this could be that God would ask this of someone that he loved. But, of course, he sees the end from the beginning. Abraham, you you could argue Abraham was at a total loss and completely destroyed when God asked him to sacrifice his son. But was he? No, Abraham trust and believe in God because God had already made a promise to him concerning his son. That he would give him a son, and there he would be the the heir, right? And they would they would even inherit the land and so forth. The promises had already been gay, given way before this, right? So God already had the promises of God that he had believed, and he continued to believe them. So being asked to take his son up and offer him, he would have to believe also that God would provide deliverance. Because Isaac had to be preserved according to earlier promises that God had given him. It's a wonderful thing, right? And so what we read of here is that, uh, uh, again, uh, there's a blessing given by God, and he repeats the, the promise there in Genesis 22, okay? All right, um, so... What is the promise concerning that 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 Abraham's son would, of course, go on to have children and so forth? And in fact, the families of the earth would be blessed through those descendants of Isaac. Okay, well, but ultimately, it's not just Isaac as the seed that was promised, but it's the seed of the woman, right? That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So we see this this theme throughout uh, the Old Testament concerning the seed of the woman. And so, really, uh, if it's Isaac who's going to be the type, really, uh, of, of um, redemption through the, the being the, the seed of Abraham and fulfilling the promises of God given concerning that, then, uh, you know, ultimately you will see that final complete fulfillment of the promise brought forth in the direct line all the way back to Abraham. And that's what you see in the genealogy, right? In Luke, it goes back there. And also the genealogy in Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham, okay? And through Isaac, in other words. All right, so what what's being written here is that... God makes a promise, he keeps it. There should not be any question about it. God makes a promise, he keeps it, and he uses this example of Abraham and the promise concerning the seed, right? 
and goes back to Genesis 22 for that. So <laughs> if Genesis is not inspired, then the whole doctrine concerning the coming of Messiah, who is the seed of the woman, is tarnished and falls to the ground ultimately. How important is it that we take Genesis as given by God and authoritative and inspired? No question about it, right? And so he exhorts based upon this, and he says there in in Hebrews, uh, where we were reading chapter (laughs) 6, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul both sure and steadfast. Okay, so are we encouraged by this? I hope that we are. Let's look at the last thing I'd look at today, which has to do with the faith. Okay, we're talking about the kind of faith that uh, provides a substance of our hope and how that was even established even at the beginning, even at the beginning uh when God first called out uh, by faith those that would be saved, right? Those that would be delivered and redeemed. Redeemed from what? From the curse that had come through Adam, right? Gail, I want you to read Genesis 22, please, verses 11 through 18. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he say, said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad. Neither do thou anything unto him, for now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Raya, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Oh, excuse me. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of the heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Okay, thank you, Gail. So, Really, there's a principle being laid down here, which is that as believers walk by faith, God continues to renew and even uh, strengthen their faith, um, as he did here for Abraham. Okay, so he can he again gave the promise again and again. He keeps reminding him and that further establishes his confidence in the Lord. Right. Um so it is for us. Okay, now we go ahead and we see in this amazing chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, <laughs> we learn what kind of faith it is that God gives. Okay, this is not hope so at all. What kind of faith is it? Uh, Patty, would, 
Would you please read Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 7? <clears throat> now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world, and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Okay, <clears throat> thank you. Well, what what we see here is a list of what he calls the elders that had obtained a good report. Many are listed by name uh, and others listed by reference in this chapter. But there are those that are listed by name, even including Abel and Enoch from the earliest chapters in Genesis, right? And then Noah, Genesis chapter 6 and following, right? Okay. So these are those you might say before human history was written. Uh, I mean, after after the flood, there's human history uh, goes all the way back to that time, right? But 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 for this, you'd have to have the word of the living God to know anything about Abel, Enoch, so forth, Noah by name, right? He says uh, something there that's most critically important for us, which is what kind of faith it is that they had. Okay. What kind of faith was it? He said, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So what we find here is a contrast. And it's, we've seen it already in the other portions of the letter of the Hebrews that we've looked at, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6. There's a great contrast between things that are seen and things that are not seen. The faith latches on to the things that are not seen, that God has promised, but there's no way to see them. They haven't occurred yet. They're future, or, 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 or they have to do with eternal truth. You can't see it, right? <clears throat> so there's no human experience that can be a foundation for that kind of hope. The kind that is based on human experience is hope so. It's not reliable. It's not dependable, right? But this hope he's talking about here is reliable because it's based on the word of the living God, right? The promises of God. So he says that what faith does is it makes the things hoped for real in the sense that you have them now in a sense, even though they, the fulfillment 
of the prophecy hasn't yet come. <laughs> so you have the much of the blessing even now, even before the full prophecy has been been fulfilled. Okay, okay. So notice in verse three, he goes right back to the creation. There, the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Okay, so again, the contrast is laid down here between things that are seen and things that are not seen. And that's true of each of these. It's true also for Abel, Enoch, and Noah, okay? And it's only hinted at as to exactly what they had believed. In the case of Noah, it's pretty clear. God's going to bring judgment on the entire earth, right? Uh, I believe the same was true for Enoch and Abel. The judgment that they they were uh, focused on and that the promise of God to them personally related to was different in each case. For Abel, it had to do with deliverance from sin. Remember, he was told that it was a blood sacrifice only that God would accept, right? Deliverance from sin and its penalty only through the blood right? Sacrifice. And ultimately the blood of the seed of the woman, our Lord Jesus, right? With Enoch, it was something different. Uh, he pleased God, it says. He had a faith that went beyond those that were around him in this world system. And uh, his faith was, <coughs> excuse me, something to do about how God would deliver uh, from all of that, and he himself was delivered. He says he was translated. He was taken out. He was, <laughs> and that's all taught there in those early chapters of Genesis. And uh, verse 6 summarizes it. Without faith, it is impossible. Without this particular kind of faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, even though you don't see him, right? Uh, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, as Enoch did, right? Well, if you look at the genealogies in Genesis, it gives time frames. This person was born when his father was this age, and then he had a, his first son when he was this age, and he died after this many years. And it keeps doing that for each of them, right? And if you make it on, put it on a chart and you look at it carefully, you see there's some very hidden hidden things that are in the, the genealogy, which are very revealing. One is that Enoch was translated less than 100 years before Noah began preaching that God was going to judge the world by the flood. Okay, so Noah was preaching and it was in everybody's memory, no doubt, in his family. Because Enoch was his great-great-grandfather, okay, that he had just disappeared off into nowhere. Perhaps some even saw him go up into heaven. I doubt that. I think they just knew he was no more. He was not found, it says in Genesis. Nobody could find him. He was just gone. But he'd apparently been preaching deliverance, and God delivered him, <laughs> right? Hundreds of years even before the flood came. No, well, not hundreds, only a little more than 100, okay? If you look at the genealogy and the numbers given there. So then there's Noah, okay? Warned of God of things not yet seen. Moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house. 
by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith, you see? Okay, so the emphasis in all of this is the contrast between that which is seen and that which is not seen. God chooses, for the most part, to work in the realm of the not seen. Faith, therefore, has to operate in that realm. We have a hope of things that are not seen, but faith gives us the substance, the reality of it. Romans 8, 24, it says that very thing. Let me quote it for you. For we are saved by hope, by the specific type of hope he's writing about there, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for it? Okay. So spiritual hope is in the invisible where God often works. And if that's in the founding, uh, if that's a founding principle of our lives, as it should be, what is Hebrews exhorting us to? To have that as our founding principle, right? Then our lives will be based on so much more than what appears, so much more than that which we see feel and experience because our lives will be based on that which is spiritual and eternal ah genesis chapter five should i read it i think i'll read you go back and read genesis five and look at the genealogy and draw a timeline and find interesting blessings when you do that because you're going to read about Methuselah, who was Noah's grandfather, right? Methuselah died in the year of the flood. He was not killed by the flood, but he died just before the flood began. Methuselah's name was given to him by his father, Enoch. And what does Methuselah's name mean? It means, in the year that he is, shall it come. In the year that he ends, that he ends, shall it come? So there was a prophecy that God was going to bring judgment, even in the name given to Methuselah by Enoch. Okay. Another amazing thing is that Lamech, when Noah was born, named him Noah, which means rest or comfort. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful <laughs> to have the word of God? I'll just finish today by reading what Paul writes to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, writing about the Old Testament. Right? Now, all these things happened unto them for examples. And they are written for our admonition <laughs> upon whom the ends of the world or the ages have come. Hmm. So God rested from all of his work, and we're to do the same, trusting in that which is invisible and the promises that tell us all that we need to know about eternal things, right? And give us instruction into how to live now in the realm of his grace, walking by faith and not by sight right praise god well as i said we would go way over if we weren't careful 
So <laughs> may we all enjoy the Lord greatly today. And uh, I hope that these three lessons on Paul's view of Genesis have been a great blessing to you. Any comments before we uh, close in prayer today? Patty would like to add something. Well, I'm just so thankful that we have the completed word of God and and for your diligence to to uh, search it out because this you know this these truths these are the things that fill us with hope the substance of things hoped for mm-hmm. the evidence of things not seen mm-hmm. we look all around us and we see evidence but that's evidence <laughs> of, of sin mm-hmm. and the consequences of sin in the world and it's very hopeless mm-hmm. but our hope is secure and certain and the testimony of that hope is all throughout the scriptures it just has this exquisite design and um, i'm just thankful to the lord that we live at this time in history we have the completed word of god Mm. we have access to it in our own language and in reliable translations and um, these are the things that fill us with hope that no one can steal away Amen. Amen. Really, really true. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for gathering us today. It's quite a blessing indeed uh, to often open your word. And uh, I pray that we each would do that often throughout the week. And when we don't, that you would uh, remind us of what we've already learned of you through your precious word of truth. And may your scripture come to mind that uh, we have learned in times past to encourage us to give us endurance and strength and uh, to always have our ears open to hear that which uh, is written to hear your word father and to take you at your word for your word is truth and your promises cannot fail at least not those that are unconditional, as so many are. Thank you, Father, that we've enjoyed your grace greatly, and I pray that you continue to show us the sufficiency of it day by day and hour by hour. And whatever challenges we each will meet, that uh, we will never uh, lose that hope, which indeed is eternal because it's based on eternal promises. So, Father, thank you again, and uh, what a blessing it's been. We thank you in Christ's precious and holy name and for the abundance of your grace. Amen. Amen. Amen.